Welcome to the Edutainer Podcast. My name is Erin Albert. In this podcast, we explore the intersection between education and entertainment. Stay tuned for another episode coming up next. Hey everybody, Erin Albert, Monday, January 18th, 2021, Martin Luther King Day. Also, on several fronts, we're starting fresh again. Number one, uh, I read recently that there may be a Sanditon season two afoot. For those of you who listen to the Save Sanditon Jane Austen podcast miniseries from last year, with the edutainer would be excited to know that also happened to be one of the most popular miniseries I've had on this podcast maybe because it's something a little different so I wanted to share that with you all in case you weren't following that online keep your fingers crossed there number two we're going to start a new miniseries today here at the edutainer miniseries seem to be very popular with a lot of you and I've listened to you and I'm trying to bring you more of those in the new year the topic that we're going to focus on for this new mini-series is a catch-up with our life science lawyers. So over 10 years ago now, I wrote and published a book called The Life Science Lawyer. And in it, I interviewed about 30 or so professionals who were kind of at the intersection of healthcare and law. So these might have been pharmacists, Uh, public health professionals, nurses, physicians who then decided to go on to law school. I picked their brains as to why they did it, what was their main motivations for going, and most importantly, what was going on with their careers at the time. But again, in the blink of an eye, 10 years have gone by. So I wanted to double back with some of them and catch up with them on what's been happening those 10 years since. So my first interview today is actually with one of my personal mentors. He's been uh, tremendously helpful to me because I went on to law school later in my career than, you know, boom, boom, right out of pharmacy school. As well, he too is a pharmacist attorney and has served for a long time in academia. For those of you that follow pharmacy law, you probably already know him. His name is Joe Fink. He is at the University of Kentucky. I try not to hold that against him when it comes to basketball, especially being a Butler fan. But nonetheless, he has been integral in my own pharmacy law journey. And so I wanted to start first and foremost with him. So give a listen to my conversation with Professor Joe Fink, pharmacist and attorney, today on the Life Science Lawyers Catch-Up mini-series. We are here today with Professor Joe Fink, and uh, Professor Fink is actually one of my mentors, and he is the inaugural interview for a new podcast mini-series that we're having in season four of The Edutainer. We're kind of looking back at our Life Science Lawyers, and this was a book I wrote several years ago now, 12 years ago, now that it's 2021. And I wanted to kind of double back with all the life science lawyers out there, find out what they're up to. And I thought of no one better to kick this series off than Professor Fink. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you, Professor Fink. 
you are prolific in the world of pharmacy and law. So I, I definitely wanted to start with you in this whole series. And so I always start with the same question of all my guests. How did you get to where you are today in your own career? Well, I grew up in a pharmacy family. I went to pharmacy school with the intention of taking over the family pharmacy, but got redirected by a faculty mentor. And uh, while I was in pharmacy school, now this goes back a ways, Medicare and Medicaid were enacted. Yeah. Uh, the, the Poison Prevention Packaging Act was enacted. The Controlled Substances Act was enacted. And therefore, uh, there was a lot of legal activity related to pharmacy. So I decided to go to law school. And uh, uh, the most interesting part about my being in law school was that I was in, in uh, law school in Washington, D.C. while Watergate was going on. Oh. And that was, that was a really interesting time to be in law school. And then when I finished law school, I had an opportunity to teach for one year on a soft money position, uh, no com budgetary commitment beyond one year, and decided I would try that and did that and liked it. And then they found some money to make the, the position a recurring budget item. And I so I've now been in academia 49 years. So, um, and I've enjoyed, enjoyed it. It was the right decision. Wow. 49 years. That's amazing. Congratulations on achieving that hallmark. Um, <laughs> so, so, so let's focus on maybe the last decade or so. What has gone on? What trends have you seen? You're at the University of Kentucky right now, teaching in two different schools. Kind of catch our, our listeners up if they happen to read the book, The Life Science Lawyer, and wanted to hear about what you've been up to since. Okay, I had a, a number of uh, administrative positions at the university level at UK, and uh, but always continued to teach. The whole time I did that, I always continued to teach at least one course every semester. And that made the transition from being an administrator, when I got burned out on that, uh, the transition back to being a faculty member much, uh, much easier. Uh, so when I returned uh, with my full-time placement in the College of Pharmacy, I began to pick up some other responsibilities at the university. They're not necessarily uh, very pharmacy-related. Um, one thing I do is I am, I am in a position uh, called Faculty Athletics Representative to the Southeastern Conference and the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Every NCAA member institution has one faculty member who serves in that role, and the focus is on issues at the interface of athletics with academics. And I'm now in my 11th year doing that. It's a presidential appointment, and uh, the best part is that the president pays 25% of my salary, so my department chair loves that part of it. <laughs> and uh, I've gotten involved with some interesting issues related to athletics. Um, one thing I've been doing for the university that draws on my legal background that is always interesting, never dull, is we have an, an, a unit at the university called the University Appeals Board. This is where students appeal when they have a dispute with a faculty member. I got a B and I'm certain I should have an A, or if there's an allegation of cheating or plagiarism in an assignment. We also handle uh, non-academic conduct appeals. Uh, we handle about 25 to 30 cases per year. Uh, the appeals board has 30 members, 18 faculty, 12 students drawn from across campus. And that's always interesting 
I don't have a vote. I'm the process guy for that that activity, but um, I always approach it from the perspective of uh, if it were one of our sons who was involved in that kind of situation, how would I want him treated? And I try to treat the students who are appealing uh, the same way that I would want our son treated. And so that's, uh, that's an interesting thing that I do that is really not totally unrelated to my pharmacy background, but draws some on my legal uh, background. The um, um, one final thing I'll mention that I've done in the past 10 years that was interesting was that I did a, a two, three-year stints as a public member of an organization called the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, LCME. LCME is the accrediting body for allopathic medical schools in the U.S. and Canada. And it's called the Liaison Committee because up until right after World War II, there were two bodies that would accredit credit medical programs in the U.S. One was out of the American Medical Association, and the other one was out of the Association of American Medical Colleges. And the U.S. Department of Education came to them and said, we're not going to any longer recognize two accreditation bodies. You folks need to get your acts together and set up one accrediting body for allopathic medical schools. And so this liaison committee sort of bridges the gap between the American Medical Association and the Association of American Medical Colleges. And so uh, I was a public member there for two, three-year terms, and that was interesting to see the kinds of issues that medical schools face many of which are quite parallel to what pharmacy schools pay, face with their accreditation standards and preparing future health professionals and so forth. So that, that was an interesting thing I've done in the past 10 years as well. But I've, I've now concluded that, that term I've maxed out. Interesting. Well, you've got a lot of ground to cover there. I definitely want to go back to a comment you made about administrative burnout because administrative paths in universities uh, is definitely one career path that many folks take. What, what administrative roles did you have within either the College of Pharmacy or the university? And can you describe some of the activities there? When I originally came to the University of Kentucky in 1981, it was as, a, as an assistant dean in the College of Pharmacy. And our dean was a fellow named Joe Swintoski, who had come to Kentucky from uh, Smith Klein French Pharmaceutical Company in Philadelphia. And uh, his administrative structure was he had an associate dean for administration, an associate dean for professional education, an associate dean for research, and then I was the assistant dean but no, with no qualifier after assistant dean. That meant I get, got everything else that nobody wanted to do ended up on my desk. But I, I, it, it turned out to be very fortunate because Dean Swintoski was of the type who hated to go to meetings. And so every time there would be a meeting of all the deans on campus, he would send me. And to every other meeting, he would send me. And so I got to know people all across campus because I was going to these uh, campus-wide meetings. And uh, that led to me being nominated to uh, serve what's called American Council on Education Fellowship in Academic Administration. That's a one-year program where uh, faculty members are freed up from their normal responsibilities and they shadow uh, administrators, usually presidents and provosts, to figure out how universities run. And I did that for a year. 
Uh, and then when I finished that, I became director of admissions for the university, not for pharmacy, but for the whole whole university, freshman, sophomore. We, we, we even handled the admission for the law school out of the admissions office back when I was there. Um, and, and that was uh, a real interesting experience because University of Kentucky, Kentucky until that time had been, like most public universities in the country, essentially open admissions. If you graduated from high school, you had in any way decent GPA, in any way decent uh, test score, standardized test score, you were admitted. And then a lot of the people who were admitted as freshmen would not return as sophomores because they were not adequately prepared. Well, the faculty senate at the University of Kentucky decided that they wanted to go to selective admissions. And so um, I got to be the director of admissions who implemented selective admissions for the University of Kentucky. And that was interesting because there were a number of families where older son or daughter had gotten admitted under the old standards, very loose standards, and now younger son or daughter was not getting admitted under the new, new standards, and they, they wanted to talk to somebody about why. So I told the admissions officers who handled the process that I would meet with anybody. And so I had a stream of parents with uh, high school seniors in my office trying to figure out why their son or daughter was not being admitted to the UK. And uh, um, I figured out an approach to handling those meetings where I focused on the student and sort of sidelined the parents and uh, emphasized with the student that you've not met the criteria yet. You need to retake the, the admissions test. It's probably too late to do much about your GPA, but you need to uh, bone up and take the admissions test again. And uh, um, so we successfully implemented selective admissions, and that was that was fun. When I left that, I became um, an, an associate vice president for research at the university, focused primarily on the high technology business incubator we had on campus uh, called uh, the Advanced Science and Technology Commercial commercialization center or a shorthand was Aztec. It housed faculty based startup companies uh, and it could also have student uh, originated startup companies. I worked with the intellectual property committee. I was the chairman of the intellectual property committee and that's uh, how I sort of got tapped to do that. And then I, I became a vice president. Uh, I was a vice president twice and worked with uh, commercial relations and that sort of thing. Um, but as, as I emphasized earlier, the, all the time I continued to teach. And the College of Pharmacy was accommodating in that they would schedule my classes for 8 a.m. So I could come in, go to class, teach 9 a.m., start, start my day, and, and go on from there. And I can't tell you how many times... I was in senior level meetings at the university talking about this student issue or that student issue. And I'd look around the table and I was the only one in the room who had any student contact on a regular basis. The rest of them were pure administrators who had absolutely no student contact. And so I thought I brought a perspective to the discussions that was, was a plus for the university. But after a while, I got burned out on all those meetings and I wanted to have more student contact. Student contact was why I'd gone into education initially, and I wanted to get um, wanted to get back to more student contact. So, and to bring it up to the this past semester, that's why this past semester was so doggone difficult because uh, all our uh, virtually all our classes were through Zoom. Uh, I taught a class of 136 students 
and I've only ever met one of them. All the others I've only seen through a, a, a computer screen. And uh, I, I can't wait for this to be resolved so I can actually meet these students who I uh, had in class with me for a semester. Wow. So thank you for sharing your administrative path as well. I, I don't think many of us kind of in the world of pharmacy get exposure at that level. And thinking about the different activities that you're either currently working in or that you've worked in in the recent past or even distant past, do you think having the combination of the pharmacy and the law background or the legal background opened more career doorways for you possibly? Oh, absolutely. Because I can speak science and I can speak law and, and I can, so I can talk to both camps and sort of bridge the gap between um, faculty, faculty members in the chemistry department. I had credibility with them because I was from pharmacy and the faculty members in the, the law school and political science, I had credibility with them because of the law degree. So I think that combo really worked to, to um, open doors for me, no doubt about it. We didn't even, you didn't even touch on one of the reasons why we originally, I think, connected. And you are also one of the founders of the American Society for Pharmacy Law. And so uh, I've always picked your brain about a variety of topics in pharmacy law. But now that I am actually back on the board myself and serving as president-elect and then president in 2022, I wanted to ask you what historical perspective allowed at the time for ASPL to form back in the day? And then what challenges do you see the society having as we move into the future? The society was launched in 1974. And I think a, a good part of the impetus was the fact that um, you had Medicare and Medicaid recently enacted. You had the Federal Controlled Substances Act, you had the Poison Prevention Packaging Act, you had a whole host of federal initiatives related to uh, pharmacists and pharmacy. Uh, plus, pharmacists were beginning to uh, change from uh, a, a, a mode of practice where they really were not supposed to talk to patients. If a patient had a question, when I was in pharmacy school, if a patient had a question, you were to deflect that back to the prescriber because if you answered it, you were considered to be interfering with the patient-prescriber relationship. That has now, fortunately, changed 180 degrees, and pharmacists can share their knowledge with, with uh, patients for their benefit to help them get the best use out of medications. Um, so uh, th that, uh, that timing, I think, was due to the fact that uh, ASPL was launched uh, during a session at the American Pharmacists Association meeting in Chicago in 1974, when uh, oh, probably 12 to 14 pharmacist lawyers got together in a room and decided that uh, uh, this would be a good idea. And um, the, it has very uh, much an educational orientation. Uh, the society uh, uh, rigorously avoids policy positions, mm -hmm. uh, but it very much takes uh, seriously its role to educate folks about issues at the interface of pharmacy and law. And they have a tremendous fall seminar now that's usually held the first week in November that uh, brings everybody up to date on current developments in the field and so forth. And, and that um, 
it's also provided a forum, I hope, for pharmacy students who are thinking about going to law school or who for pharmacists who are in law school to connect with others in the field so that they can uh, foresee a, a path before them. Yeah, I, I noted when I was teaching, particularly pharmacy law at Butler in the past, that I would tend to have one to two students every year who had an interest in law. So can you give me your answer, because I'm sure you've answered this question a million times at UK. What is your best answer to a pharmacy student coming to you and saying, you know, I think I want to go to law school. What, what things do I need to think about? Uh -huh. Um, I had one of those conversations earlier this fall with a young lady, and then about three weeks ago, I had that same conversation with a former student of mine who I taught while she was in the Master of Health Administration degree program, and she's interested in a career in health law. Um, I think the, the first thing to ask yourself is, um, my recommendation is do what I did, and that is take the LSAT as a diagnostic tool. See, just take the LSAT and see how you score to see if you have the aptitude for this sort of thing. Um, and so when I took it, I was a sophomore in college, uh, and I took it uh, in April of my sophomore year, just sort of on a whim, no pressure, just go and see how I do. And I'll never forget the guy sitting next to me when I took the, the test was taking it for the fourth time. And he was going to be the fifth generation of his family to go to law school. And he had not yet achieved an LSAT score that would get him in. And he was under tremendous pressure. And about an hour into the exam, he broke his pencil in half, stood up and walked out of the room. <laughs> and I never, never saw him again. And here I was, I was just taking it as a lark, you know, just, eh, what the heck, let's see how I do, you know. I had no pressure. And this guy sitting next to me had a, a tremendous amount of pressure. So I recommend to students that they take the LSAT as sort of a diagnostic thing, just to see how they do. And then once they get the score back, come see me again, we'll talk about things. Uh, I have discovered recently something that I, I didn't know about for years. The American Bar Association that does the accreditation for law schools has something called Form 509, which is a, a collection of data from each of the accredited law schools in the country that tells for the most recently admitted class, what's the average GPA, what's the average LSAT score, what's the 25th percentile for each of those numbers, what's the 50th percentile, the 75th percentile for that admitted class. How many faculty members do they have? How many elective courses do they offer? What a lot of people think, uh, I think, don't recognize about law school is that basically the law school curriculum is required courses the first year and the last two years if you're going to doing it full on a full-time basis it's all electives and so there's a real advantage to going to a law school that has a lot of course offerings because you can essentially specialize with the courses that that you want to uh, focus on i had a roommate when i was in law school who was had gone to undergrad at the university of wisconsin in madison and studied economics and knew from the day he walked into law school that he wanted to be a tax lawyer. Well, fortunately, the law school we were at had a lot of tax courses. During the last two years of law school, the last four semesters, he was able to take six 
tax law courses because it, it's all electives. And he had, he had ended up in a law school that offered a lot of electives. So that, that's a real plus. So um, uh, I think a lot of people who, who haven't looked much at the legal education program in this country don't recognize that there's a lot of elective flexibility. Now, there are courses that are elective that a lot of people would, if you stop them on the street and ask them, hey, is this course required for, for law students? How about evidence? You think that's a required course? How about um, um, business organizational forms? Do you think that's a required course? Most people would probably say, oh, yeah, that's required. That's basic. Wills and estates, that's, that's basic for lawyers. No, that stuff's all elective. And, and so uh, you, have, you have a lot of flexibility in specializing and crafting a curriculum for you. Yeah, I'm thinking about that poor guy that did six hours of tax law. That sounds like my oh, worst night. Oh. <laughs> right. God bless him. I'm so glad there are tax lawyers out there so I don't have to do that. <laughs> oh, well, I'm with you on that. No <laughs> well, with that, Professor Fink, in kind of our, our parting today, thank you for sharing kind of your update and your career path overall. How can people follow you, connect with you? I know you are a professor prolific writer as well. Are you writing in 2021 in any of the outlets that people can follow you? I hope to, yeah. Uh, Pharmacy Times gives me a column that uh, called Legal Focus that is usually there in, in, uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, they also gave me an opportunity oh, a couple of years ago to start a column called Legislative Focus that is student-authored. And so on every... Um, uh, in every issue, there will be a column where the lead author is a student, and then I usually am also a, a designated co-author because I supervise their preparation of the piece. Um, but the, the, the difference about that is it has to have some connection to legislation. It can be federal or it can be state. It can be legislation that has been enacted or legislation that is proposed, but it has to have some hook uh, related to legislation. And uh, that and that brings me to another point that I think is important. Uh, when students come to me and say, I'd like to write one of those, I say, okay, here's a list of maybe 40 potential topics I have that you can think about. But when you make this decision about what you're going to write about, be strategic with your selection. If you think that you're down the road, you want to be an oncology pharmacist, try to find some piece of legislation that has a relationship to oncology and write about that. If you think you would like to be a pediatric pharmacist, find something that relates to pedi pediatrics and so forth. Be strategic with your selection. And I think the students, uh, therefore, enjoy the undertaking more than if it were just something that was not related to their, to their main interest in pharmacy. Absolutely. And, and I applaud you for doing that because, to me, that's just another form of advocating for the profession. I definitely think we need to offer more opportunities like that for our next generation of pharmacists. So with that, Professor Joe Fink of University of Kentucky, thank you so much for coming back and sharing what you've been up to the last 12 years. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, the first in the mini-series of The Life Science Lawyer. 
Forgot to mention, Patreon super fans, just for you, I have a list of all resources that I've either written or seen or read in my own past about this combination of pharmacy and law in terms of career development. That dossier of information is over at the Patreon fan page just for you. And as well, just a heads up that I'm starting to write for GoodRx's peer-to-peer professional blog. And my first blog post that appeared recently is on the intersection of pharmacy and law for career development. So if you're interested in learning more about this particular career intersection, I'll be sure to post the link specifically for the GoodRx article in the show notes of today's episode. Again, hope you enjoyed it and be back soon. We'll have more episodes on the Life Science Lawyer follow-up. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Edutainer. I'm Erin Albert. You can follow us over at Facebook. We have a separate page now for The Edutainer. At Twitter, you can follow me at Erin L. Albert. Of course, I'm on Instagram at Erin Albert. And of course, online at LinkedIn and AaronAlbert.com. Thank you so much. I hope wherever you are, you are staying safe, staying well. And until next time, take care. <laughs>